This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're with Bite Into It. Good evening. Big thank you to Monique Sabir for the last three hours of Out on the Patio and another outstanding edition. She'll be back next week between 4 and 7pm. Tonight on Bite Into It, we speak with a digital accessibility expert, Andrew Arch, and he joins me in studio now. We're also going to be hearing an update in the field of wearable technologies. So that's later in the show. But before we get there... Yeah. Andrew, it's great to have you in here. I was going to be solo this evening, so I really appreciate the company. Um, And feel free to jump in anytime with news. It's great to have you here. I know you've been a long-time listener of the station. Do you you recall when you first started tuning in? No, I was trying to work that out, um, but it was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) It it doesn't look like it. I should ask them next time I resubscribe and say, when was my card first active? Look, it couldn't possibly be that long ago because it just doesn't look possible. Possible. So let's let's get into our news this evening. Uh, there's a couple of Facebook bits of news, and they've had a, a bad week. Uh, they have had a security breach, and it's been quite extensive. It have impacted at least 50 million of its users. Andrew, do you use Facebook at all? Intermittently. It's almost impossible to escape it completely right. because of family commitments. Exactly. Yeah, I find that. Use it more when we're travelling than when I'm just. Uh Around town. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's a good place to house those travel pics. But what happened with this particular breach is they have had to um, comply with a whole lot of new uh, data retention reporting uh, schemes around the world because that's been quite a bit of fashion lately. Uh, They initially responded by logging out um, the people it knew were affected by the attack. And it was really people who had um, been looked up with the view as tool in last year. Now, I never even noticed that there was a view as feature and I really had to dig deep to find out what that was. And I'm sure you might too. But if you were forcibly logged out of your Facebook app, then you can reasonably expect that uh, you're affected by this, this breach and you'd be wanting to change your passwords. You will be prompted to do so. Beyond the impact of Facebook accounts, it does impact those related accounts which you've let Facebook log in with for you. We've always advised against this sort of reciprocal login relationship thing. We know it's very convenient, uh, but when breaches like this happen, it means that the impact is is much bigger. And it really highlights why you shouldn't do that. And you know, The advice that you're giving people generally is don't rely on Facebook or Twitter or whoever to do that login for you. Yeah. Set up your own account. And I know it's a hassle to have so many passwords. Use a password manager. Absolutely. That is great advice. Uh, The Australian Information and Privacy Commission is informally investigating this breach. Um, They have not had a report from Facebook at this stage whether um, any Australian users in particular had been identified. However, you know, we know from the amount of anecdotally people who've been logged out that, yes, they have been affected. Um, The... It has forced Facebook again to expose a little bit of its process around resetting access keys for users and what they do about security. I thought that their messages were quite good, uh, quite descriptive, and it really jumped on it fast, as far as we could tell. Um, So I don't really know if there's that much more that they could do except for build more secure platforms that don't have these vulnerabilities built in. So they've switched off the feature that was vulnerable and are definitely working on that. That's all we know at the moment. Facebook breaches, done. There's going to be a bit of this, this uh, 
toing and froing tonight as I navigate all of the the things in front of me and uh, and enjoy it quite a lot. So Facebook also is trying to get ahead of its involvement in misinformation. So in Myanmar and uh, the Philippines and Sri Lanka, um, they're under a lot of scrutiny from government and uh, I guess you know, citizenship type of bodies about misinformation and propaganda. Um, There's been a roundtable held in California around integrity, safety and conflict. And it let the people in those countries in particular bring up some of the issues they were having um, to do with some of the cultural nuance uh, compared to, you know, the the American expectations in the the space. Uh, So there was a real mix of, you know, engineers and Facebook wonks and and, uh, people into public policy and looking at the impact of Facebook on government. So we've seen them held to account to a little bit in... uh, in the States. But interesting that Southeast Asia are putting their hands up there and saying, this is a real issue for us and our, our free and fair running of elections. Mm. All right. That's kind of interesting. I think that there were, there were, um, for instance, uh, pieces of inflammatory content that might be deemed newsworthy in the United States and parts of Europe. Um, but would be considered with different levels of cultural sensitivity in some of these countries and, you know, deciding what's newsworthy and not goes through a different process. So I guess that's that's the sort of nuance, like cultural nuance they're getting to there. So some of it's just that cultural bias mm-hmm. that people in the West might have towards countries that aren't like them. I think that's what they're getting to in a very yeah. polite way. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. So... In slightly less political and much more exciting news, um, people are an- analysing Apple's move to the eSIM. And a lot of people that I've chatted to just today to test the waters haven't heard of an eSIM. What it is, it's like a virtual SIM card. And what it will allow you to do is change the carrier that you use for your mobile phone, change your, your uh, phone provider without having to get a new SIM card from that provider. Oh, yes, I saw that announcement just recently and thought, you know, this is the way to go. This is it. I mean, we need to try and liberate people a bit from those lock-in relationships with cards. And particularly when you travel, you can see how many barriers there are to to sharing information easily and getting access to to telecommunication networks fairly. Um, You really get gouged as a consumer. So, yeah, all for the consumer rights in this area. And this piece of hardware and and software technology will really help with that. So smartphone manufacturers are all for the eSIM because they can use the extra space within the phone to put more features in. And they're always thinking about how can we cram more battery in there and improve that battery life. And they're always working on improving those cameras. Um, But for telecommunications networks, it's definitely a threat because it does let people change with a lot more convenience. You can do it virtually. You don't have to queue up in some some place and get the new deal. And then have the device to be able to swap your SIM over and so on. Exactly, exactly. Um, So it's a really interesting development. Um, Apple have been quite good on um, trying to articulate what's in the interest of the consumer, um, definitely on the privacy front and now on this front. Uh, others would say that they gouge on price sometimes. So, you know, I guess it's uh, six of one and half a dozen of the other. Do they have a time frame for introducing this? I'm not sure if they do. I think no, it's I probably going to be... I don't recall seeing it either. Yeah, pretty inconsistent across 
across different uh, models. So I guess and, and we'll probably see. across different countries. Yeah, I, I would expect yep. so. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, we've made it through the first little bit. I'm going to continue to try and press buttons correctly. Andrew, thank you for being my um, support network over here, over the bench. You need a third <laughs> hand around there. I will let you know. I will let you know. Let's not. Let's not. Um, bet that that doesn't happen or something. There's going to be double negatives. This is a problem. Speaking and playing. Will you drive I'll, I'll shift the gear stick. <laughs> You're with 3 R 713. Uh, buy into it with Vanessa Toholka. And we've got the lovely Andrew Archivist this evening. He is an accessibility expert and he's currently consulting through Intopia Digital. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Nice, nice to be here. It is fantastic to have you in studio. Um, look, accessibility is something that it's very easy to get on board with, but I'm not sure that everybody knows what it means. So what does accessibility mean to you, and then particularly digital accessibility? Really, it's about making the digital things that we create, and we're talking you know, specifically digital, available to as many people as should be able to access them. Um, the... World Wide Web Consortium basically turns that on its head and says, you know, digital is accessible unless you make it non-accessible and you put barriers in front of people. It's quite a so, radical perspective, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. By default, it should be accessible to everybody, people who can't see it, listen to it, people who can't use a mouse, use a keyboard, uh, people who can't uh, hear, have the captions turned on on the video like we like um, my uh, mother-in-law does on the TV and so on. So, we, But, you know, if we don't do those things, we're actually putting the barriers in front of people. And that I understand where the W3C are coming from with that, but that does rely on an internet that is bare bones, that you don't mess with anything to get your presentation a certain way. Um, I can imagine a, a slightly plain, you know, less experimental looking internet if, if it was like that. But I think that there's so much that they've done on, on the presentation side. Um, do you think that they've, they've done enough to give people the tools they need to kind of make the sites the way they want? Yes. I mean, if you think about accessibility from the start and design it in, then there's really no reason why you can't have all the bells and whistles but still have it accessible. Um, there's uh, so, so much uh, code that can be adjusted uh, as you're developing, but, you know, if you get the, the basic semantics right um, and have a site that, you know, has appropriate labels um, on all the forms, has appropriate headings for all the text, um, some um, basic descriptions for the images, you're going to cover most of the bases. You know, some of the, some of the development platforms and frameworks need a little bit more love to mm. make them work because yeah. those platforms and frameworks weren't designed necessarily with accessibility in mind. You know, common platforms or, or frameworks these days are you know, Angular and uh, React, probably the two most common of the single-page app stuff. Mm. Um, React is a bit better than Angular, but even, you know, React, uh, you know, you, you can do just about anything that you, to make, if you don't try and break it, React can be made very highly accessible. In fact, you know, as accessible as plain HTML. Yeah. So who is impacted by poor accessibility? Well, we tend to think about it, uh, well, a lot of developers think about it, that it's you know, people who can't see the screen. But poor accessibility goes far beyond people with disability. Uh, you know, take the ABS statistics, 18.3% of Australians have a ongoing disability. 
But what about the person who broke their arm and is strongly right-handed? Mm. Um, you know, how are they going to move that mouse, that mouse with the left hand if you've ever tried to do it? I had to train myself to do it at one point because I was getting a bit of RSI in the right hand. I had exactly the same issue. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it, it is very difficult. I actually worked with somebody once who broke his arm renovating his house, um, was pulling up the floorboards, fell through and um, ended up with dictation software to, so he could talk to his computer while his arm mended. Um, these so, tools really are essential to our daily lives these days. You know, uh, you can't like, interact with government, for example, in a lot of ways without being on. So the accessibility is so vital. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, everybody's got a smartphone. Who looks at it outside and says, gee, I wish I could see that better? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, you know, you forgot your headphones and you're on the train and you wanted to watch that, catch up on that um, episode of whatever it was that you you, you like to watch. Um, Andrew, did you no catch captions. the news this week uh, about the woman who mistakenly ticked the box that she was a terrorist while she was travelling? No. Apparently this happened because she did it on a mobile device. Right. It might have been an iPad and so something was a little bit off screen and just not seen yes. and... There, there, the accident lay, that classic accessibility issue. Yep, yep. Um, what do clients typically start thinking about? Oh, sorry, when do clients typically start thinking about accessibility? You've mentioned that, you know, it can happen too late, but, you know, do you think that that's still the case? It's still the case in lots of cases. Mm. Um, you know, somebody makes a complaint um, through whatever channel there is to make a complaint, you know, rings up the switchboard, and complains and they say, okay, maybe we need to do something about it. And they, but you know, everything's live and running. They get somebody in to do an audit and find out they've got a lot of issues. And you know, that, that's about as far as a lot, a lot of people might go, unless you're really committed. It's much more expensive to repair something than it is to build it right in the first place. I've seen numbers in the order of 30 times for usability and accessibility. Mm. You know, if you didn't uh, consult with people uh, about what's going to work for them in the first place. Absolutely. So I'm old enough to recall when the Commonwealth Games, or maybe the Sydney Olympics, I'm forgetting which one, a massive sporting event in Australia, went online with its website and were... Uh, lampooned by the vision impaired because they hadn't done something as basic as putting um, alternative text tags on their site describing all the images. And images were being used for navigation, so this was actually really important. This was in... 2000. 2000, it would have been, yeah. It was the Sydney Olympics, yeah. Is this still a story that people tell each other about an accessibility fail or have we... Has it been replaced with something a little more contemporary now? It's still talked about, in fact, it's talked about around the world yeah. because it was an early court case um, in countries that weren't, aren't litigious like the US. <laughs> uh, when I was um, in the UK several times, people said uh, over there after that, I wish we had a case like this because it actually demonstrates that the law applies because most uh, countries, and it's the same in Australia, um, our Disability Discrimination Act was 1992. You know, unless you were uh, you know, working in CSIRO at that time, you weren't on the web, uh, you weren't on the internet. Um, so there's nothing in our DDA, Disability Discrimination Act, that talks about digital delivery. Is that so? How interesting. I was working for the ABC at the time that that happened and so I was very fortunate working for a government institution like that. They always had the breadth of the public in mind and um, but still it did send shockwaves through the organisation just making sure what have we missed? Is, is there anything that we haven't thought about? And in digital, you know, things were emergent at the time. Do you think that there are other emergent spaces maybe in mobiles or what have you where people are still 
you know, making mistakes and, and we're still discovering um, really problematic areas for accessibility? Oh, absolutely. I mean, mobile apps are, are probably a key thing. Um, you know, the next uh, thing, and we, you're talking about wearables a, bit, a little bit later in the show, yeah. but the Internet of Things, um, what's that going to mean? You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that may be totally beneficial, like um, driverless cars. If you can't drive a car at the moment, you may be able to have a car in five, ten years' time. As long um, as we design that in. Yes, Got it. Uh, but, yeah, if you can get into that car uh, but you can't use your arms and uh, legs, you can probably just tell the car where to go and when to come and pick you up and, you know, it, it'll be great. But, you know, so we have to think about not just design it for what we call the average, you know, that middle of the bell the curve in terms of people's yeah. ability. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, well, let's let's dive in a bit. Can you tell us um, about any projects that you're working on and, and what it looks like to be an accessibility expert out helping people with their digital accessibility? Well, the types of projects I prefer to work on is when, I'm, when we're called in or I'm called in to work from the get-go when the project's been thought up and we need to do this. Um, I was fortunate enough to do that in the disability um, Digital Transformation Agency mm-hmm. uh, that I worked in for a few years in Canberra before we moved back down to Melbourne 12 months ago. And, but you know, right now I'm doing some work with Australia Post. Uh, I'm in there one day a week. I'm working with their designers, critique, helping to critique the designs so that they take account of uh, flow through the screens from one screen to the other, mm. what's going to happen if they've got a carousel to um, do a slideshow, um, what, so we're, we're thinking about what the implications of these designs are before it goes near the developers and then to work with the developers to make sure that they're taking into account somebody who can't use a mouse, for instance, and still needs to go navigate that carousel, um, what what might be read out to a screen reader user um, from a, you know... Um, a particular page, uh, all sort of that sort of stuff, working with the content people mm. because, yeah, micro content is really important in terms of if you're applying to uh, you know, buy something in a shopping cart, uh, all sorts of micro content there as you look at the catalogue, choose something to buy, go through that purchasing process, you know, just the, the labels that are visible um, or, or not visible in many cases because they assume everybody can see it. So we need to provide those ta- those um, additional cues for the people who might be listening to the screen. And, you know, the, the screen may be obvious visually because of its structure, but if you uh, are listening to it in a linear fashion, mm, it's the order becomes so vital. Be. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can, you're really bringing that to life there. Um, you're in a position where I wonder if you've tapped into some of that discussion around things like endless scrolling or dark patterns on, on sites where um, people are concerned not just uh, about maybe the accessibility but also about that feeling of satisfaction and whether you will ever leave a site, that tendency to to get hooked on a site and stay at YouTube for too long. And we've heard people suggest things like maybe something can pop up and say, you've been watching YouTube for this long. And that exists, but most people don't know it exists. So they don't turn these sort of things on. Does accessibility extend to that sort of um, issue, that tension? Uh, well, People with disabilities are just like the rest of us. They can get hooked on certain programs. They can get hooked on on whatever it might be. You know, um, I just updated my iOS uh, on my Apple phone this afternoon, and the first thing it said is, "Do you want us to give you a report on how much screen you've been using over a week?" And I thought, "Oh, oh no, <laughs> I'll control my own screen time." Thank you very much. But um, will you? Will you really? <laughs> are you holding yourself accountable, Andrew? Because I have my doubts. Uh, but you know, coming back to something like endless scrolling, yeah. um, you know. 
it annoys a lot of people. But, you know, if you want to try and find out how to contact an organisation, that's usually in the footer. Mm. And with the endless scrolling where it's continually refreshing itself, um, you'll never be able to, if you can't use a mouse and you're just tabbing through the yes. interactive elements on the page, you can never get into that footer yes. to, to find those sorts of things yeah, on You have to pages. kind of be quick, don't you? You find yourself trying to catch it. That's right. And, and um, move to so, a slower yeah, we, browser. We would always recommend load, load more, load more, load more, yeah. um, or have them you know, broken up. 45 items on a page or whatever you, you do to really an appropriate number. Yeah. So how did you get into this field? I don't see many courses out there saying become an accessibility <laughs> digital you know, expert. For me, it was taking an opportunity to the rose. Um, I'd got into the web back in the early 90s in government, um, building some of the very first websites and intranets for state government departments. And then I was... Um, Move to work on the Better Health Channel, oh, one of those websites that is still around as betterhealth.vic.gov.au. Gee, Amazing. I hope you got it right then, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> You've probably um, learnt a lot since then. Yes, absolutely. But uh, you know, they wanted to make sure that that was going to work for the broadest um, audience um, back in hmm, late 90s. It's uh, something that 2000. government deserves credit for. You know, they are quite good in this space. Yes, Mm-hmm. And the accessibility was one of the things that they were specifically looking for, um, even though it wasn't my forte at that stage. But mm-hmm. I got interested in accessibility from the perspective of working, uh, you know, can farmers use the websites that the Department of Agriculture, uh, Department of Natural Resources was putting out? Farmers are great with their hands, but a lot of them haven't got very good hand-eye coordination moving a mouse and looking at the screen. Uh, very as I discovered grain. with my father-in-law. Very, very fine grain compared to, you know, throwing cattle around or something. Or, or even, you know, using all the tools to pull a tractor down and put yeah. it back together again yeah. where everything is direct. Um, yeah, a lot of little things like that. And, and back in those days, uh, in the 90s, uh, we had very slow connections. Mm. So the advice to farmers was turn your images off. You'll get a much faster page because text loads very great fast. great advice. Um, uh, and up until relatively recently, I still often did that in travelling and in hotels. If you turn the images off, you can uh, get most of the information you need much more quickly uh, than sitting around twiddling your thumbs that while that page loads. genius tip. I love it. Make the most of your Wi-Fi. Yes, absolutely. When mm. you're paying big dollars uh, when you're travelling. Uh, <laughs> so... Are there many standards, you know, you've mentioned the W3C sort of protocols, but are there many standards that you work to within the accessibility space to guide you? Basically, the stand, well, the W3C develops all the standards that we use, HTML, CSS uh, and so on, uh, and a whole lot of others outside of that now, but uh, they're the basics. Um, But back in... Uh, the late 90s, they released the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines Mm. along with authoring tool guidelines and user agent guidelines for accessibility. But the main ones that that, uh, most people took took account of or started to take account of were the Content Accessibility Guidelines. Mm. They refreshed those more recently in 2008 and um, then again in the middle of this year with uh, with a version 2, with the uh, middle of this year with a version 2.1. Um, but they're basically the international standard for meeting um, accessibility for digital. Mm. And, and, and Australia you... adopted that um, back, back in um, you know, shortly after... 2008 and again shortly after, um, oh, well, back in 98 and then 2008. And then in the human rights uh, space, you mentioned that uh, there was something something there. Yes. So, um, as I said, our um, 
Disability Discrimination Act is 1992, pre-Web, mm-hmm. but the Human Rights Commission have uh, released, um, after the Sydney case, mm-hmm. they released a note describing what the DDA meant Great. for online. Uh, and they say it applies so to government, yeah. Yeah, government and the private sector, right, basically, right. And, and they reference the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Amazing. So there are a couple of events coming up where people can find out more about inclusive design. I wonder if you could uh, tell our audience about that before we have to let you go. <laughs> sure. Okay. So it, uh, there's a very interesting event next week called Inclusive Design 24. It's been running for about five years now. Uh, and basically it's uh, a group in the, the US who, who initiated it. But um, what, what the uh, event is, is 24 webinars in 24 hours running around the world so that uh, people in different countries in different time zones can listen to whatever's going on in their time zone. That is excellent accessibility design right there. Yes, that's right. Makes it very available to to people. So um, you can pick that up on um, inclusivedesign24.org. Um, and it starts at 11 o'clock on the 11th and uh, runs through into the 12th. Um, yeah, go and have a look at the schedule. There's some really, really interesting talks, including my uh, colleague and myself. I think we're speaking at about four o'clock in the afternoon. Fantastic. Sarah Paulson and myself. Yeah. Uh, and the following week, just coincidentally, is um, the Ali Bites Conference. Um, A11Y for Ali, and a lot of people say... Ally. Why, Ali? Yeah. Ally. Um when we only had 128 characters on Twitter, you t- tried to use um, tags that were abbreviated and accessibility is A11 characters Y, which became A11Y as the hashtag That's amazing, for accessibility. because I read that as an ally, like you're an ally to right. accessibility, which I think is beautiful. Yes. Well, I mean, that's the way a lot of people interpret it and sort of we tend to say ally or ally rather than um, A11Y. But so this it, is more it, for... It's one one in the middle. This is more for practitioners or people, you know, with a bit of a responsibility to get this sort of thing right, isn't it? Yes. Because this one's got um, a small The conference fee. actually has uh, two streams um, and um, a, a very technical stream and then a, a stream for designers, um, policy people uh, and so on, people interested in, in the, the softer side, if you like, of, of uh, making, making things happen on screen. Beautiful. Beautiful. Andrew, um, it's been brilliant to hear about your work. You're clearly so enthusiastic about it and it's a space where you can really make a difference. So I appreciate you sharing it with us this evening. Um, you're with Intopia Designs at the moment and, uh, yeah, people can, can find you at Intopia, sorry, Intopia Digital uh, and people can find out more if they look for you there or indeed on Twitter where your yes. handle is... A-M-J-A. A-M-J-A. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Triple R at 7.35 and you're with Bite Into It with Vanessa and our special guest, Andrew Arch. And right now we are joined on the phone by our second guest for the evening. Her name's Jessica Brereton. She is the head of Wearable Technologies Australia and um, they're running a two-day conference on in the Melbourne Convention and uh, Entertainment Centre. I always forget what that acronym. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, lovely to be here. Sorry if I just dropped out for us at that moment? No, that's all right. I'm sure it was me. I'm very rarely in the driver's seat, but this evening, that's indeed where I am. <laughs> so um, you are the head of Wearable Technologies Australia and they're running a, a uh, conference right at the moment. We're in the middle of it, so we appreciate you taking the time out. I hoped that you could tell us tonight a little about what the trends you're observing in the wearables field at the moment. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's 
pretty exciting. You know, it's not necessarily a new industry. We've been running the events globally for around 12 years now um, and just coming down to Australia for the first time last year. Um, but we're definitely in the infancy seeing as how the tech grows, where it's advancing and how we're finding more real-life applications. Um, I'm sure you remember when Fitbits first came out and fitness trackers first started uh, to become popular. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's a while back now and it's changed so much since then. Uh, smartwatches, um, when Apple first came out compared to the amount of companies putting out smartwatches. Um, and of course, you know, AR, VR. Um, moving just beyond gaming and now finding further applications for, um, you know, in the medical field or in education. Uh, definitely in Australia, uh, we're particularly excited about the medical device side of it. Um, we're seeing really exciting products come out, you know, on uh, smart patches um, where you could measure someone, for example, if they're diabetic, you can measure their blood sugar levels. Just on a patch, you can attach to someone's skin. Gee, that's fantastic um, to, to get around <laughs> that invasive sort of technologies they've had to use in the past. Yeah, exactly. It's all about finding something that's a little bit easier. Uh, obviously, one of the challenges is finding some, something that someone would want to wear every day, mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly if you're uh, wanting to track something consistently in the medical side. Mm. Um, but then advancements in smart textiles as well. We're constantly finding new materials, something lighter, something a bit more durable and something we can wire to... Um, measure things a little bit better so uh yeah medicine's a big one for us um payments you've probably seen westpac the release um quick payments just on a, a bracelet um we've got payment rings at the moment so uh it's definitely going to streamline that whole, pro- whole process and i think yeah. we'll be able to uh, leave our wallets at home completely it's very interesting um, that yeah. the payments embedded in all sorts of objects these days i mean frank green in melbourne <laughs> was one of the first payments? ones for us yeah yeah um, are you using any of those technologies yourself at the moment? <laughs> um, definitely on the fitness tracking side. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, on the watch side, I've um, tried the payment bands as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of those unfortunate people, though, that carries everything on her back. <laughs> <laughs> one of my own. <laughs> yeah. So I think getting through that, um, once I can lose everything else in my bag, it's amazing. Once I can lose my ID, I can guarantee you that's being left at home. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, I wonder if uh, you picked up any trends on how leaders in the field are thinking about um, accessibility with some of these devices. Obviously, the people working on diabetes have thought about accessibility really well. Yeah, yeah. So, um if it's something that has to be measured every day, um, how is it for someone to work with? If you're working, for example, in aged care, um, how can you create a, desi- a device that's very fluent, that's appealing, that doesn't um, kind of affect your movement uh, is a very big one. Essentially, once you get to the point where we're wearing devices and we don't notice they're, they're there. <laughs> um, in terms of how they're implemented in uh, Australia and different countries, it's something that's definitely ongoing. We're in the early stages now. There's a lot of companies that are doing clinical trials. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, for Australia, it's a little bit easier for companies to undergo their clinical trials here. So we have a couple of US companies that uh, come to Australia. Is that right? I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, um, you know, we've had a, a one company that works with uh, concussions. 
So if we've got someone that's playing footy, for example, and they're having a concussion, we want to know about it when it's happening. Gosh, so. it's such <laughs> a big issue in the States with American football at the moment. It is, it is especially now, especially after the past couple of months. Um, so if you can manage to get advice that's non-invasive, we can measure it, we can catch something before it happens. Um, it's definitely possible. And, you know, tech is always becoming smaller. We're always developing new materials. So... Um, the big issue here is how we're going to change our practices um, to help manage that and help approve devices in Australia. Mm, that's um, that's for sure. Uh, do you know anything about where demand for wearables is the highest or is it something that you're just seeing universally around the world? Um, yeah, there's definitely um, def- different countries that are focusing on it at the moment. USA uh, is huge. Um, you know, it's a big place for tech engineering. There's um, a lot of innovation coming out of the U.S. Um, as well as they've got the um, heavy uh, kind of presence in terms of components and building components. Um, just even on the more fun side of wearables, there's a lot of companies that are coming out of America that are doing, you know, a D- D- DIY Raspberry Pi kit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do, do this at home, integrate it with your uh, clothing, integrate your, create your own wearable tech evi- uh, device. Um, Canada's very large, Switzerland um, obviously has been developing a lot of um, t- uh, top devices in the wearable, uh, sorry, wearable healthcare industry. Um, That's really interesting device. to hear that they're yeah. in there because I've heard a lot about the, um, the threats to the, the global watch market and, you know, wearables yeah. are really <laughs> a, one of those massive uh, disruptors for them. Yeah, um, but wearables are in that great uh, point where we're combining that hardware with tech um, as well as some older devices. So there's a lot of space for innovation and definitely we're seeing that from Switzerland. Um, I I, I believe Google's been working with uh, Novartis to create their wearable contact lenses. Oh, incredible. Um, So when you talk about invasive devices, (laughs) I'm not noticing they're there. I guess there's good invasive and bad invasive. <laughs> um, China, obviously, manufacturing tech um, in terms of quick payments. It's, it's, mm. it's been around China for the past couple of years very, in a very strong way. Um, and then definitely Australia and India. We've got uh, rings coming out of India that um, there's a, quite a large crowd, uh, crowd-funded ring that's coming out of India at the moment that's um, promising to... Quite a lot, so we're happy to see where that goes. Absolutely, and small companies here in Australia. We've had a very strong medical uh, device industry for quite a while. So, when we think about you know companies like Cochlear, like mm. um, and like hearables, uh, neurophones coming from Australia as well. Yeah, we've we've spoken like, to them and we've spoken yeah. to Leah Heiss. There's some amazing work coming well, locally. Yeah. yeah. So locally, um, Australia actually does have a lot going on, and we've got this really really big focus on um, you know design and user experience. And um, that's been a really big focus for us at the conference this year as well, uh, which I think has been a little bit uh, different from conferences around the world yeah. because we are, we are thinking about the customers so much. And we do have that history um, just in working on those smaller medical devices. Look, I was really impressed with the quality of the speakers this morning. I was able to pop in just for a little while in between some work. Yeah, and um, I, I caught Billy Whitehouse um, from Wearable yeah. X uh, it was really uh, amazing what she was doing with uh, the 
the lightness and the the sensitivity about where sh- where they'd you know put the devices and um, so she was doing uh, like a, a yoga type of outfit that would guide you through movements. It was it was just yeah. incredible to see. Um, but she did bring up the GDPR, so the Global Data Protection um, Regime, yeah. and and sort of said that if you're in this space, you know, you're crazy if you're not focusing a lot on this at the moment and thinking about that. So what sort of conversations um, did I miss? What, what conversations are you having about the GDPR and wearables? Um, so with GDPR, I think it kind of links to that broader um, discussion of data and how we can use data, especially with wearables. So you want to be collecting quite a lot about the user. <laughs> um, so GDPR does have, um, say, like uh, we've got restrictions on how much information we can essentially track on a user. Mm. Um, and if you're tracking someone's body movements and you want to release a commercial product, you're going to be tracking quite a bit. You're going to know a lot about a person and you're going to know probably quite intimately what they're doing about a person. So um, how can we create a product that helps someone at the same time while, uh, while adhering to that? Yeah, that tension with with people's privacy and their and their data, and then the the value that they want to get out of a product is is so important and vital to get right. Um, do you yeah. think that that the people that you're speaking to in the industry like grasp how vital this is to their success, like getting that privacy balance right and making their audience you know data secure? Um, yeah, so it's definitely um, in conversation at the moment. Um, if you're going to talk about medical devices, for example, um, I, for me, I believe there's two types of people. There's people that will go to the doctor and people that refuse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so if you're going to be tracking your own health using a device at home and you are promising to have that data constantly relayed, a medical professional and saying we will only contact you if something is wrong how comfortable is someone with having that data but also how can we protect that data so how is it for someone to um, discover that very very personal information on someone um, as well as how is it is for someone to change information mm, mm. <laughs> um, that's so going to be a real battle and, and in other cases <laughs> you know it might be uh, life-saving I'm thinking of you know yeah. <clears throat> when you're talking about wearables and medical, um, fall detection devices for older people, um, um, yeah. tracking yeah. devices, GPS tracking devices for uh, people with dementia who might wander off and forget how to find their way home again because they've lost that short-term memory about where they are. Um, you know, that, that's taking it another step in terms of uh, the privacy, but you know, it could be life-saving for those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, we had... There was one case recently in the US where um, someone's device actually told them their heartbeat was irregular, went in, said they were prone to a heart attack very shortly. So there's definitely um, space there to be life-saving, but it depends on how happy we are to <laughs> uh, be free with our data. Like there's, um, so we've talked about uh, the go- government health records mm. at the moment. Mm, exactly. Um, Whether people are opting in or out of the e-health exactly, record. Exactly, yeah. yes. So, and that um, mandatory opt-in, I thought, was quite bold. Yeah, uh, well, it was, a, it, was a, it was originally a mandatory... Uh, sorry, yeah, it was mandatory opt-in, you have to opt out. Mm. And, um, I think they've also released something similar in the US, which was also a, man, a mandatory opt-in mm. um, in some of the states there. So uh, it, it depends how people sit, but I definitely feel like it's 50-50 here in Australia so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. That's for sure. 
Um, so what's next for the Global Wearable Technologies Group? Are you taking this conference? Is it is it on the road at the moment? Is Melbourne just, you know, the current um, location? Um, so for the Australian editions, um, last year in Sydney, this year we're in Melbourne. So we're definitely just taking a feel on how the ecosystems, ecosystems are connecting here, uh-huh. interacting with our international guests. Um, for our first year in Melbourne, so far it's been absolutely fantastic, so we're very excited uh, for tomorrow as well. Um, and then we'll also have events next year in um, Europe, San Francisco, as well as Asia. Brilliant. I mean, the quality of presentations was just so high. Um, there was a lot of research there. There was a lot of a lot yeah. of detail. I really appreciated that um, and would, <laughs> would highly recommend it. I, I think it's an area that, that more and more... Um, people were thinking about starting companies into and it would yeah. be a great entree for people to sort of see that the issues that they'll have to grapple with. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was actually having some conversations today. We get a very strong, I think, future founder audience. Mm, mm, I think <laughs> um, that's right. People with, there's a lot of people with ideas. There's a lot of people that have seen um, how quickly wearables have been growing here in Australia. And as a country, Australia's actually been quite receptive uh, to adopting wearables more so than a lot of other countries. Yeah. Um, so the ideas are definitely there, but it's making sure that we um, know where to get our tech, we know where to get everything designed, um, as well as aware what the regulations are here in Australia, or even if we want to take our, our company global. Amazing. Look, uh, Jessica, thank you so much for making time to speak of us in the middle of the Wearable Technologies Conference. Um, if people want to get involved, uh, where should they explore? Um, yeah, so you feel free to look us up um, if you look up Wearable Technologies Australia. Uh, we'll be at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre um, from tomorrow at 9am. So please, please, please come in. It'd be great to talk to anyone from the wearable ecosystem at the moment. Um, tomorrow we'll be focusing a lot on design as well as real-life applications of wearables. Um, Perfect. We'll be running until around uh, 4pm. Well, I wish you every success with the future conferences and uh, thanks for the amazing conversation today. Yeah, thanks, Vanessa. Thanks. It's 7.55 on Triple R with Bite Into It. You've got Vanessa and our special guest, Andrew Arch, here this evening. Now, last little bits of news. Uh, there is a growing digital divide in China as consumers embrace the cashless payments um, and cash-only businesses are, are really uh, suffering under this. So I think our, our former guest, Jessica, would be super interested in this one because it does speak to uh, all of the different ways we can pay cashless nowadays. Uh, Andrew, have you gone cashless in any ways? Um, yes, I go and get a bit of cash out just every now and again, but use the credit card for uh, 99% of my transactions these I days. I think, you know, PayPass has made it so easy. I mean, FPOS had a massive um, inroad into the Australian market and uh, in, in New Zealand, they, they went with PayWave a little bit ahead of us and it just became ubiquitous, you know, even for very small payments very quickly and we weren't far behind no, I mean, there's still a few stores that won't take a credit card for under $5, but uh, you know, most of the coffee outlets that I frequent are quite happy to take your card for a cup of coffee. Well, the people getting a cut in China are part of Alibaba um, for the most part because Alipay has become hugely popular over there. That's their little payment thing. Um, yeah, so so it's pretty, pretty interesting to see. It would make travel in China quite easy, I would say. I think much easier rather than being sure you had the right change. I mean, yeah. If, uh, Except for the foreign transaction fees that they hit you with all the time. I mean, tourists just can't win. (laughs) Yes, so you need your um, 28 degrees card. 
exactly. Uh, or, or something like or that. Or some sort of, uh, yeah, payment passport mm. sort of thing. They always brand them with funny things. Just to take that um, whole thing a step further, um, Sydney Morning Herald, um, probably the same article in The Age, I think I first read it in The Age um, uh, a week ago, was talking about forget the checkout. Uh, for Woolworths, um, saying, you know, if you see some people looking like they're shoplifting in uh, a couple of Woolworths stores in um, Sydney, they're actually going that you don't actually even have to go through the checkout. Um, the items so will be... are they handling it with smart baskets? That's right, effectively. Wow. Yep, that's yeah. my understanding. It, it is um, and convenient. the idea is it's going to be more convenient and faster for people to get in and out of the store. That's right. And if there's points of failure for, you know, theft and things, which we know have been a problem with uh, pay your own way, I guess those problems are just the same, just yep. at a different point in the supermarket. Yes, that's oh, right. Oh, we're going to be so no, actually, surveilled. I, I think this particular one is you scan each item that you put in your basket okay. uh, with your phone, right. with a special app, and then you say you're done, walk out, and it'll take money out of your account that you've connected to the app. What do you think about that accessibility, Andrew? Uh, there's probably some questions there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably some usability questions as well. Uh, can you actually scan the right part of the product? Exactly. I never know which side to scan. <sighs> Uh, look, there's an opportunity we'd like to call out. We've already spoken about quite a few events this evening, but uh, Renaya May's The Frustrated State uh, book is just recently available. Now, it was funded by a Kickstarter. For those who don't know Renee, he uh, was based in Canberra and was doing a lot of political commentary on technology policy and really excellent commentary coming out of Delimiter. I think that um, people didn't always agree with what he had to say uh, and that was actually, you know, a credit to him that he was just, you know, uh, reporting as fairly as he could see it and, um, you know, really trying to hold government to account in this space where he felt that, by and large, they weren't as digitally literate as they needed to be to make decisions for Australia. So his book is now available. You can get it on um, as an e-book for Kindle on Amazon's Australia site. But unfortunately, Australia doesn't allow printed copies of Australian books to ship to Australia. So you <laughs> can still it. access the print copy in the US. US Amazon store and maybe use one of those mail forwarders. It's an imperfect solution. I'm currently making my way through it and I can recommend it as um, a really interesting snapshot into technology policy in Australia. That's the frustrated state. It'll probably become more easily available as these things do as they take off. That's what I imagine. Andrew, ouch, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Thank you to Jessica Brereton from uh, Wearable Technologies. And thanks for listening this evening. We've been bite into it. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.